All right. Good morning, familia. Let me let you into a little secret. Um, I was supposed to come and pray a few seconds ago, and then Sarah noticed that I didn't come up, and then she prayed. Isn't that great? Yeah, let's give him glory. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Hannibal Rodriguez, and uh, I'm the senior pastor of the church. It's a pleasure to have you around. If you're worshiping with us here in person or you're worshiping with us online, you have no idea what a privilege it is for us to have you in our midst. And if you're visiting for the first time, I just want to let you know that we're here to love you and serve you in any way we can. Today, we're going to do something different uh, to what has been our, our tradition during this, during this time of the year. Usually when we celebrate Easter, we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and then we stop. But what we're doing this year is actually we are continuing the celebration one more week. And part of the reason why we're doing that, yeah, is, uh, part of the reason why we're doing that is because two Fridays ago, we remember and we celebrated that Jesus died in our place. He died for the, to take the penalty of, this, of our sin and the consequences of our sin. Last Sunday, we celebrated and remember that Jesus resurrected and that he defeated death and he, de he defeated the power of sin and he earned our salvation before the Father. But if we stop there, then we are not actually finishing the story. Because Jesus not only died and resurrected, but Jesus also calls us to live after the resurrection and live the resurrected life. So the question that I'm trying to answer today is, if Jesus died and Jesus resurrected, what now? If you have placed your faith in Jesus, right, and you died and resurrected with Jesus, what now? And that's why today we're going to be looking into Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, to see what the resurrected life looks like, or to see what living in the light of the resurrection looks like. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word as a sign of reverence to Him and His Word. And if you are still here, can you please say, I'm here. I'm here. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts in the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds and the things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of this, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Verse 8. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices. Verse 10. And have put on your new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Verse 12. Therefore, 
as God cho God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear each other and forgive one another if any of you has, uh, has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let me pray again. Lord, we are grateful that we have access to your word. We know, Lord, that you transform by the power of your word. Actually, what we witness today, Lord, the, the, the celebration of baptism is because your word never comes back empty. And because your spirit is always present, moving and using your word to transform our hearts and minds. I pray that you do it again. I pray that the Holy Spirit moves in our midst and allow us to see and understand and believe and repent and submit to whatever the scripture says. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus. And we all say, Amen. you may take a seat. Paul, the writer of this letter, has a unique way to write his letters. His tendency, for the most part, is to start everything he writes with Jesus, talking about who Jesus is, what Jesus accomplished, and who we are in him. This is what theologians will call the, the indicatives of the gospel. And then immediately after, after that, he will move in what theologians call the imperatives of the gospel. Paul, every time he writes, he makes this connection in be, in, uh, between the indicatives of the gospel, who Jesus is, what Jesus accomplished, and who we are in him. And immediately he moves into the imperatives of the gospel to tell us, if that is true, then he tells us how is it that we ought to live. That order for Paul is extremely important. As you're going to see as we preach through this text, that Paul does not separate these two things, but the order really matters. And we'll, you will look into that a little bit more later on. What I find unique about this passage, though, in Colossians chapter 1, is that Paul gives us a set of imperatives, but he automatically reminds us of the indicatives. Actually, the whole, letter, the whole letter is written that way. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 is all about the indicatives, who Jesus is, what Jesus accomplished, and who we are in him. And then chapter 3 and 4 is all about the imperatives, how, based on that conversion, we ought to live. So what I want you to see here is that Paul is saying something similar to what John Calvin said many years ago. John Calvin used to say that salvation is by faith alone. You don't need to earn it. It's faith alone. But that, that faith never comes alone. Meaning that if you truly believe, there should be transformation in your life. That's what Paul is arguing here. So today, we're going to spend a few minutes talking about what, it, what, it, what does it mean to live in light of the resurrection. If Jesus died and resurrected and you place your faith in him, assuming that you're all Christians, then how is it that your life supposed to look like? And he's going to give us four things that we should do. Number one, he's going to call us to fight for and with your heart. If you're a believer, that's your call. Number two, he's going to call us to fight for uh, and with your mind. Number three, he's going to call us to fight for and with your will. And number four, he's going to call us to fight for and with your community. Your heart, your mind, 
your will, and your community. Ready? I need you to do me a favor. Look at the person next to you and ask this question. Do you know how to fight for the things that matter? Go ahead. All right, point number one. Do we have, can we put the point number one on the screen? There you go. Put number one. The, Paul calls us to fight for and with your heart. Now, here you see right at the beginning in verse one, the first imperative. Colossians chapter three, verse one says, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts and the things above what Christ is. Let me read it again because the guys are a little bit behind back there. Since then, you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts and things above what Christ is. It's super important that we understand what the Bible means when we use the word heart. See, in the Bible, the word heart is not just this muscle that we have that pumps blood all over our system. And the heart is not just the place where you have your emotions and you feel things. The heart in the Bible is almost like the, the control, the center of control of everything else. The heart in the Bible is where your uh, emotions come from, where your thoughts come from, where your will is affected, where everything you do and are come from. The way we have explained it here in the church is that your heart is when you find your affections. What you truly love is in your heart. What you truly hate is in your heart. What you truly enjoy is in your heart. Everything we are, everything we have, everything we do flows from your heart. Isn't that the reason why Jesus would say something like, every word that comes out of your mouth comes from your heart? I mean, that's a crazy statement if you think about it. Because when we are mean to one another, we could say, you know, I'm sorry. Oops, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say that. And every time I hear that, I'm thinking like, oops, yes, you did. <laughs> Think about it. What happened is that you lost control there for a second. But whatever comes out of your mouth is actually a reflection of your heart. If you think that way, there's... It makes sense why Paul would say, set your hearts and things above where Christ is. This is Paul saying to people of the resurrection, fight for your hearts. Fight for your, uh, your affections. Don't allow your heart to be entangled with all the things. Don't allow your heart to be distracted by all the things. Don't allow your heart to love other things much more than when you love God. Because whatever comes out of your heart... Whatever is in your heart dictates your entire life. Let me, let me continue with the topic of fighting for a second. Because how many of you guys have had a, a strong disagreement with someone? If we don't want to use the word fight here, right? That's one person at least. There you go. There you, go. you guys are holy. Uh, and James asked the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? He's asking the question. What makes us fight with one another? And people will be quick to respond and say, well, he, he got me upset, or she got me upset. But that's not, not, that's not what James says. James says that the reason why we fight and we have issues with one another is because our, our own desires are fighting within us. James chapter 4, verse 1, you got to memorize that. The word desires there's mean that it is your pleasures that makes you fight. 
It is your delights that makes you fight. It is your enjoyment that makes you fight. It is your affections what makes you fight. This is what he means. That whenever we take anything good that the Lord has given us, and we love it so much, and we enjoy it so much, and we find pleasure in those things so much that it could take the place of God. It replaces God. The good things that the Lord has given you, if your affections are not in order, take the place of God. And that's what we fight. You can fight because of your grades, your career, your looks, your position, your money, your recognition, your love, your romance, your family, your friends, and whatever. Anything the Lord has given you that is good, if it takes the place of God, it becomes an idol. And if it becomes an idol, you are willing to fight for that. Paul, later on in verse 5, is going to talk about evil desires, which I don't think is a good translation because the word in the original is more like deep desires, deep longings. And what Paul is going to argue, part of the reason why we have evil desires is because it was a good desire that went wrong. It's a good desire that took a hold of our hearts. A deep desire becomes evil when it replaces God, and you try to find in other things or people what only God can give you. And Paul says, you cannot afford to do that. Don't assume that you graduated because you're already a Christian. Don't assume that you love Jesus so much that, you don't, that you're not going to struggle with this. Actually, what Paul is arguing is be careful with your own heart because there's a possibility not only that you walk away from Jesus, but that you deceive yourself. If you're doing the Bible reading with us as a church, this last week we read 2 Timothy chapter 4, and there you have the example of this man named Demas who walked away from Paul, and by implication that means that he also walked away from Jesus because he fell in love with this world. Isn't that crazy? He was doing ministry with Paul, and he walked away from him and God's kingdom because he he fell in love with this world. If you're a believer, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are called to fight for your heart, fight for your affections, set your hearts and the things above what Christ is. You seek for Jesus, you learn about Jesus, you worship Jesus, you surrender to Jesus, and it doesn't matter how many times you mess up, you continue to set your hearts and things above. The worst thing that the devil could do in you and for you is to make you believe that when you mess up, That's the end of the road. You get up, you shake it up, you repent, and you continue to set your heart on him. Now, if you notice, that's the imperative. Paul is saying, this is what you ought to do. If you are resurrected, died and resurrected with Jesus, this is what you do, the imperative. But Paul knows that the imperative is not enough. That what motivates us to live for Jesus and what empowers us to live for Jesus is to pay attention to the indicative. The indicative is the influence over your heart to live the imperative. And this is why in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 again says this, Set your hearts and the things above with Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That little word changes everything. You know what that means? That Jesus not only died and resurrected, that not only you place your faith in Jesus and then you died and resurrected with him. That because Jesus went to the presence of the Father and he's standing at the right side of the Father, that means that there's nothing else for you to get done. 
That means that the Father already accepted. That's why Jesus is chilling up there. There's nothing you could do to add to what he already did. And you know why Jesus did all of that? Because the Father had set his affections on you first. So why wouldn't you set your affections on him? Can you see how the imperative follows the indicative? Paul says that if you're living the resurrected life or you're living in light of the resurrection, you got to learn how to fight with and for your hearts, your affections. Number two, Paul says not only that we got to do that, but we are called to fight for and with your mind. Look at what it says in verse 2. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things. Now, this is also so typical of Paul. By the way, Paul is my favorite writer in the New Testament. He's, a, he's got a way to handle the Scripture like nobody else does. And what Paul is doing here is something that you see all throughout his writings. He always makes a connection between the heart and the mind. In his theology, he understands that the mind affects, affects the heart and that the heart affects the mind. In other words, that thoughts have consequences. Listen up, church. That you are not just the things you do. You are the things you think. Let me put it this way. Your heart, your mind, affects your heart. Your heart affects your love. Your love affects your life. If you don't think that that's the case, I'm going to prove my point really quick. I'm sure that most of us have experienced this, but whenever you see something that you want to buy, that you know that you don't need, but the more you think about that thing, the more you start to feel like if you need it. Isn't that true? How many of you guys struggle with that ever? <laughs> see, that's the thing, is the more you hold the thought in your head, the more you embrace that thought in your heart, the more you hold that, the more your heart starts to say, man, I really need that. When you already have 20,000 pairs of shoes already. <laughs> I'm talking to guys, by the way. <laughs> you see, I don't know why my brother was laughing so, so loud. <laughs> Let me give you another example because I think I find it, I find it in the Scripture. Your identity is the same. See, in this church right now, whether worshiping in person or online, everyone can be divided into one of these two groups. Either you are part of the traditional group or the modern group. And both groups tells you what should define your identity. And both groups are wrong. Here, if you're part of the traditional culture, traditional background, your identity is based on what, did, what your community thinks of you. You commute, your identity is based on what your parents think of you, what your great-grandparents think of you. The problem with that identity is that not only it ignores whatever God thinks of you, but it creates this frustration because your entire life you are thinking, well, I need to be accepted by my people. I, need, I, I cannot let them down. I need to fulfill their standards. You are whatever your community says you are, and that controls your life. The way to live that life is almost like if you got to look out first, in order for you to figure out who you are inside. But can you see what the problem is? Because if your community is off, then you're off. 
On the other hand, which is more like a modern thing, you are not identified, your identity is not based on what people think of you. What the culture tells you is that you are whatever you think of yourself. You decide who you are. You could be whoever you want to be. You could be whatever you feel you are. You know what the problem is with that? That not only you don't pay attention to what God thinks says, what God says you are, but the irony of it is that even though you say that you don't need to be approved by anybody, as soon as you say that you want to be something, you go and look for someone that tells you that endorses what you want to be. In other words, as much as you think that your identity is based on looking in and not looking out, at the end of the day, you're trying to identify yourself by looking in and then looking for somebody else outside of you that agrees with you. But what Paul says is that that is not how you figure out your identity. Your identity is by, comes by looking up. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. You are defined by who God says you are, not by who you think you are or your family says you are. You are what God says you are. Set your minds on things above. That is the imperative. But notice once again that Paul is going to appeal to the imperatives by reminding you of the indicatives. Look at once again in verse 2 and verse 3. Set your minds and things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Can you see it? You are in Jesus if you have placed your faith in him. You are not defined by what people say, your family say, your traditions say. You are not defined by whatever you think you are. You are defined by God that you are in Jesus. If you have placed your faith in him and Jesus died and resurrected, then you also died and resurrected. And the beautiful thing about this is that whatever, however the God sees, God the Father sees his son, that's exactly how he sees you. Listen, if God the Father loves Jesus, he loves you just as much if you are in him. If God the Father is committed to Jesus, God the Father is just committed to you if you are in Jesus. If the relationship between the Father and the Son is unbreakable, then his relationship with you in Jesus is unbreakable. Listen up. If the Father already set his mind on you, and that's why Jesus went to the cross. Why wouldn't you set your mind on him and his kingdom? That's an imperative that flows from an indicative. Paul knows that we need to fight for our minds and our hearts. Paul knows that there's ramifications when we don't know how to do that. And number three, Paul is also going to call us to fight for and with our wills. Now, on this one, I'm going to spend a little more time because it, it is, uh, I think it's extremely important that we understand why is it that Paul talks about the things he talks about and in this order. Did you guys notice verses 1 and 2? It's all about your, uh, your setting your affections in Jesus and setting your mind in Jesus. And after he does that, he comes and talks about, he, he's going to talk to us about our will. 
Why is it that Paul is following that order? Why is it that he's not appealing first to your will and then to your affections and your mind? Let me explain to you why is it that Paul is not doing that and he never does that. This is the reason. Because if God appeals to your will, number one, you think that this is on you. Because if God appeals to your will alone, then he, create, he can create in you a moralist, someone that is good just because you're good. And because if he appeals to your will, then you're going to think that you could save yourself. That's why, that's why he doesn't do that. You know what he does? He appeals to your affections. He appeals to your mind. And then once you have that, he knows that by nature, you are going to want to surrender your will to him. If you grew up in a religious home, your house was full of rules. If you grew up in a, in a home that understood this, everything was about Jesus, his glory, and what he did for you. And the result of that is that you are going to want to submit to Jesus. Let me, let me put it this way. We are driven by desires. You are driven by what you feel in your heart to be true. And I, 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 I'm, I'm making something up, okay? So this is fiction, church. It's about to get personal, but it's fiction, all right? I want to prove to you how that's the case, that you don't change just because people tell you to change. I want to prove to you that you change when your heart changes and your mind change. Your will will follow that. So let's pretend... Fiction. Okay, can you say fiction? Because i got to make sure that you understand that. Let's say that there's a boy that is in love with love. And that boy happens to be in love with love with one of my daughters. I have two daughters. All right? Yeah, relax. Hold on. <laughs> so this boy that is in love with love shows up to my house when my wife and I are not there. Terrible mistake. <laughs> the boy tells my daughters, baby, I have this thing for you that is controlling me. And that's when I'm here. Even though you are underage and your parents are not here and you can get in trouble, but I can't control it. It's just here. Now, let's say fiction, hopefully, that one of my daughters lacks wisdom, and she lets the boy in. Mistake number two. <laughs> and la let's say that just when this boy is about to make a move, whatever that might be to you, my wife and I driving into the driveway. Now, this boy, that is, his affections are engaged with my daughter and his desires are engaged with my daughter. Here's my car coming in. And now he's wrestling with things in his head. He's saying, well, I know Hannibal is a pastor, so this should be okay. But then the more he thinks about this, he well, hold on a second, but he is a father before he's a pastor. And then he's more thinking because he's about 16, 17, who's, who's getting smart, right? And he's saying, well, not only he's a father, but his job is to protect his daughter. 
And then maybe he starts thinking, man, this was dumb. Well, I don't know why I'm here. This is, is going to get ugly. And then he remembers that we are all still sinful, including the pastor. So in his head, he say, well, I, I don't know if this guy is really holy just yet. So let me just figure this out. He's got two options. Either he's controlled by the affections and desires for my daughter, or he's controlled by his affections and desires to stay alive. <laughs> is that true? So guess what he does? He runs for his life! <laughs> because that desire was stronger. That's how we all live. We are the boy. We are control, but what, control our, but what controls our hearts and by what controls our minds. If we do that, then our wills will follow. That's what Paul is doing here. And now that he made all that case, now he's going to appeal imperatives to our will. Look at what he says in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, whatever you have in your sinful nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And then in verses 8 and 9, he continues the list. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not, do not lie to each other. Can you see it? He says, if this is true of Jesus is, if Jesus died and resurrected, if you died and resurrected with him, now put this to death. Whatever is a sin against God, whatever is a sin against others, and whatever is a sin against yourself, put it off. It's not negotiate with this. Well, just wait to see until the Lord works on this. No, put it to death. Kill it. And then he says, not only kill this and die to these things, but put on what you already have. Verse 10, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. And I love the way Paul puts this together. Because he understands that our growth only happens when we learn to die to certain things and to live for some others. The Puritans used to call this modification of sin, vivification of holiness. Isn't that what we do when we want to get healthy? You got to stop eating junk and you got to eat vegetables, even though they're nasty. <laughs> That's how you get healthy. You got to die to something and you got to live for something. Grow only happens when you say no to some things and cultivate some others. Church, Paul knows that this is, this is hard. This is the Christian life fighting within us. Paul himself, in Romans chapter 7, he says that there's a war in our members. 
Paul knows that unless our affections are engaged, our mind is engaged, and our will is engaged, we will get to grow. Now, this is interesting. The verse that we just read, he uses this phrase, that we're being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. You see, the imperative is you got to die to yourself and live for godly stuff. The indicative, though, the motivation and the power comes from that phrase. Because it tells you that part of the reason why Jesus went to the cross is because your sin dishumanized you. And by the power of the gospel and the presence of the Spirit, you are being restored into the image of God. See, when sin came into the world, we did not lose our image, but it got broken. And God is in the business of restoring that image to what we were supposed to be. Hear me out. And the church, and God has been doing that already. So that's why if you struggle sometimes looking at your life and say, man, I haven't changed anything. Don't compare yourself to what you were before, to what you are yet to go. Compare yourself to what you were before. John Newton used to say, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. That is the power of the resurrection. That's what happens when your mind is engaged, your affections are engaged, and they affect your will. That's how you grow. That's what it means to live the resurrected life. But there's one more thing, and this one is fast. Paul also calls us to fight for and with our community. Look at what it says in verse 12. Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. And over all these virtues, put on love, which is the glue that puts all these things together. And if you notice, every single one of those things have to do with community. You're not called to be kind to yourself. You are called to be kind to others. You're not called to be compassionate to yourself. You are called to be compassionate toward others. To be gentle and patient. If you tell me, Hannibal, I'm super gentle and patient. I don't know if that is true. You know how I know if it's true? If somebody that knows you tells that you are gentle and patient. But what I want you to see is that little phrase in the middle. Bear with each other. You know, when we, when we think of that word, we can usually think about, oh my goodness, that means that I just got to, you know, I just put up with these people. Bear with one another. That's not what that means. You know what bear means? Is when you literally get under one person and lift them up. When you get under a person and you lift her up. That's bearing. And there's a reason why Paul includes this at the end of this passage. Because Paul knows that we all struggle with our affections. That we all struggle with our thoughts. That we all struggle with our sins and our wills. But Paul says this on purpose. 
because we cannot grow in isolation. Living in community as part of the community is not an option if you want to grow. It's impossible for you to set your affections on the things above and things on the things above and surrender your will to God unless you are surrounded by people that when you mess up, they will continue to lift you up. Do you have that? Nancy DeMoss, in one of her talks, she's talking about power of community. And she uses the illustration of, uh, of the redwood trees. If you're familiar with those trees, those trees are humongous. They're super tall. And you would assume that because they're super tall, their roots have to be deep down inside. The interesting thing, though, is that those trees are not like that. Actually, their roots are very shallow. But what those trees have is that their roots grow sideways. Ground sideways. So when there's a number of those trees, the way those trees stay strong is because their roots are intertwined. So it doesn't matter how many storms uh, hit them. They are never removed because they are holding each other, bearing with one another, sustaining one another. Listen, if you think that you already graduated from Christianity, stop deceiving yourself. You're still sinful living in a sinful world. You still got to fight for your affections. You still got to fight with your thoughts. You still got to learn how to surrender your will. But you don't have to do it alone. That's the imperative. What about the indicative? And this is the power and the motivation for us to want to do that. Look at verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, verse uh, 13, forgive as the, Lord, as the Lord forgave you. This is the motivation and this is the power. The reason why you want other people in your life is because that person and you were already chosen by God. God chosen people. You didn't get to choose God. He chose you first. And not only he chose you, but he set you apart. That's what the word holy means. He gave you a new vision, new purpose, new reason to live. And not only he chose you and he set you apart, but he loved you dearly. You know, there's a difference between loving someone and loving someone dearly. This is what I think about. For those of you that have kids, I love your kids. But I don't love them as much as I love my daughters. See, God loves everyone. But he loves you as Christian with dearly love. It's a completely different love. It's the love that is a covenant love. It's the love that never walks away. It's the love that never lets you down. It's the love that it sticks with you even when you don't stick with him. That's why we heard this beautiful testimony today. How about if we live the life? How about if we live the life of the resurrection, the resurrected life? Amen? Let's pray. My beautiful Savior, we are grateful that the Bible understands that we are broken people living in a broken world. 
And we are grateful, Lord, for the words of Paul that reminds us that the only way that we're going to make it and survive in this life is by fighting for our affections, fighting for our thoughts, fighting and surrendering our wills, and learning how to support one another and bear with one another. Can you please do that in us? That written Bible Church, Iglesia del Pueblo, and Tri-Village, Maybe a church that pursues you with everything we have and everything we are. We want to love you more, Jesus. We want to serve you more, Jesus. We want to surrender to you more, Jesus. We don't want to fall in love with this world. We want to fall in love with you more and more until one day we can say what God already said that Jesus is dearly loved by us just as much we are dearly loved by him. And we pray for all this in the name of Jesus, and we all say...